Hello, before we start today's show, we'd like to be upfront about the content. It's a tough one. The issues we're getting into here are distressing, and the crime at the heart of the campaign we're highlighting is brutal. It's not a listen for everyone. We think it's important, but uh, if you worry it's too much, we understand if you want to give this episode a skip. But it does have some real positivity. This is the No Sweat Podcast. The No Sweat Podcast with Andrew O'Neill. Welcome to the No Sweat Podcast. I am Andrew O'Neill. I'm Nav. And I'm Maisha. And today we're talking about the Justice for Jayasri campaign. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult story. It's the story of a garment worker in India who was sexually assaulted and murdered by her supervisor. Uh, this is why we had the content warning at the beginning. Um, and some of the details might be distressing, but with conversations with the campaigners involved, we think we've got some very positive outcomes to talk about um, and some serious change making is happening with the campaigns um, so it's a uh, it's a difficult thing to talk about but there is sort of um, there's quite a heft of, of positivity as well um, I heard a few things about Jayasri I'd heard about the news story but um, didn't really know about the issues in detail so guys can you explain to us who she was and a bit of the background so Jasri Katharavo was a strong Indian woman garment worker and she was a trade union member that was involved in organising against uh, gender-based violence in the workplace at major Indian garment manufacturers that supply to American and European fashion brands. She lived in a village in Tamil Nadu, in which a state in southern India, Um Tamil Nadu is actually a major garment manufacturing hub for India um, that produces, um, that specialises in garments production, cotton production, knitwear and textiles. So this is already a place where sweatshop conditions are rife. So she's campaigning against the, you know, the patriarchal working conditions, uh, you know, the sort of conditions that are already um, wielded against women. Yeah. Jayasri was also a Dalit woman. Um, so Dalit is uh, a, the lowest caste in India's caste system, um, which is ridiculous, really. Having basing people around, you know, uh, just caste and treating them differently. So mm-hmm. in the past, they're referred to as the untouchables. And uh, the Dalit women actually make up a large section of the workforce in the garment industry in Tamil Nadu. And it relies on Dalit women for cheap and coerced labour. So being Dalit and being part of a marginalised community means that, well, they're seen as easily exploitable and exploitation has been found in both the garment factories and home-based garment work. And one one report into home-based garment work found that 99% come from marginalised communities and also 99% were working in conditions of forced labour. And shockingly, 
15% of the workforce investigated were actually children too. So Jayasri is, is just one of hundreds of thousands of women in this region that are facing exploitation in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, the majority of the workforce there are women. Um, and in Tamil Nadu, the garment industry employs over a million people. And I think it's important also to note that this is rife in India, um, but this can be this is replicated across the industry, across countries, um, largely due to the fact that women are more easily exploitable. And so in a lot of these places, including in Tamil Nadu, you see um, in the factory floor, it's mainly women workers who are work, and then the managers and supervisors are men, which then then exacerbates this abusive environment. Um, and so we've seen reports recently with um, a lot of prominent brands where that have shown just how severe the gender-based violence is in these um, in these factories and how it's essentially proliferated, and yeah, just how. Um, how rampant it is across the industry. But yeah, we did see a spotlight on India most recently because of um, the murder of Jastri. So let's deal with the difficult part of the story. Um, and again, we're going to flag up a sort of content warning for anyone listening. Um, tell us exactly what happened to Jayasri. Uh, Jayasri was only 20 years old and she worked at Nachi Apparels, which is a factory owned by Eastman Exports in India. Um, and it's the fourth largest garment export company and the largest supplier to H&M and other Western brands. Jasri had been working at the factory for over two years in order to put herself through higher edu- education and to provide for her family. And one thing that I think is really important is that she was an active trade union activist with the TTC, which is a direct women-led union, which we'll talk about later, but that in itself just kind of shows how much of a, like, incredible person she was and she was also she was basically working to support her to like like now said to get herself through education because she wanted to be the first she was going to be the first person to go into education and she was really into um learning about literature yeah she wanted to um learn about like tamil literature yeah yeah so she was an active trade union activist with the ttcu um and she had apparently been suffering months of sexual harassment and intimidation on the factory floor. Um, but despite trying to report it, the abuse continued. Um, and so it was reported that she also was being harassed by a particular supervisor. And then on the 1st of January in 2021, Jastri went missing. And after a four-day search, her body was found dumped in a field near her home. Her supervisor, which I mentioned, um, was arrested and had um, apparently confessed to her abduction and murder and her family content that she was raped as well. Um, and another thing um, that I want to highlight is the fact that when this came out, the family received a lot of threats um, from mm. the factory for speaking out. Um, they had like people coming to their house, um, threatening them because they were speaking out. So it's like a coordinated campaign of intimidation against her yeah, family so it, against they were more, sorry yeah they were mourning and then they had to deal with this on top of it because they were demanding justice um and compensation and the whole campaign so it was a very very like i don't know i don't know what the right words to say about this are um no there aren't there aren't the right words are there yeah. it's it's someone who's it's someone who's actively campaigning to make workplace conditions better for herself and for other people and as a result of that she's 
intimidated, she's abused, she's murdered, and and then her family are are targeted. And these are these are workers, managers, line managers in factories in the fourth biggest garment manufacturer in India, is that yeah. have I got that right? And they supply clothes to our high streets. And yeah, this is um, as we, as as we'll come as we'll find out in the in these interviews. Um, this is this is absolute integral part of how capitalism works, how garment manufacture works. These um, uh, women are intimidated to prevent them, um, or not just intimidated, abused, murdered to prevent them, m- essentially getting more rights for themselves in order to make. Uh, Companies pay a bit more. Yeah. Ultimately, that's the yeah. bottom line, isn't it? The companies on our high street will have to pay a few pence more. So we're going to meet the people that have been at the forefront of the campaign um, to to fight for justice for a judiciary. So can you tell us who it was spoke to? Yeah, so we met three activists involved in the campaign and who led the global campaign. Um, so we met Tivia from the TTCU, which is the Tamil Nadu Textile and Common Labour Union, which I mentioned previously, a women-led Dalit union. Um, we met Nandita from the Asia Floor Wage Alliance, which is an Asian labour-led global labour and social alliance across garment-producing countries in Asia and also consumer regions in the West. Um, they aim to build regional solidarity among Asian garment unions um, to address exploitation in the garment industry and Sahiba from Global Labour Justice International Labour Rights Forum which is an organisation that holds global corporations accountable for labour rights violations in the supply chain. Um, They aim to advance policies and laws that protect work and just migration and also strengthen freedom of association, bargaining and supporting worker organisations. So let's listen to these interviews. So how did you kick things off? So we began by asking Divya to tell us about the Tamil Nadu Textile and Common Labour Union and how and why it was started. Uh, TTCU uh, is a Tamil Nadu Textile and Common Labour Union. Uh, it is a Dalit women-led and registered trade union uh, that is representing more than 12,000 textile workers in the South Indian state of Tamil Nadu. Uh, Also, Tamil Nadu is uh, one of the three main garment production hubs in India, with more than 15 million people being directly employed by the textile industry. Most of our members are young women between the age of uh, 15 to 28, and 18 to 28 are the majority who come from marginalized communities. Uh, most are uh, first generation industrial workers uh, who are working uh, in the textile industry for 12 to 16 hour shifts every day just to pay for their college fees or uh, feed their uh, families. So this is a, a women-led trade union, and not just that, but Dalit women-led. So a trade union that's run by the most marginalised people in society. 
yeah it, it was insane hearing that these women work from well from 12 to 16 hours a day just like Jasri did working to pay off her college fees and these women are also working to support their families these workers uh, uh, work in the vast networks of factories with units ranging in size from individual home-based units to factories with over uh, 2,000 workers. Uh, most receive a poverty level wages, are denied access to uh, proper bathroom breaks and forced to produce hundreds of pieces of clothing for an hour. Every hour they are forced to do this hourly basis. Uh, TTCU started in 2013 uh, when a group of young Dalit women workers, uh, including our current General Secretary Jeeva, realized that they did not have an organized space locally to discuss uh, of, uh, of their uh, gender-based violence, wages, or uh, working conditions, which are horrific in the textile factories. Uh, the, the trade unions in our region were male-dominated and had to had no interest at all in organizing textile workers uh, who are mostly women and Dalit exclusively. So uh, we decided that we will organize ourselves and build a union and fight for our own rights and uh, especially for basic uh, dignity, including safe workplaces for women. Here, uh, I would uh, particularly want to remember uh, Mr. James Victor, uh, a local activist and labor organizer who was lost due to COVID-19 pandemic. He played a phenomenal role in supporting and advising us because many of the women workers were not even know what is union, how to build a trade union. Nobody knows as we hardly knew what it is. We only knew that we had to stand together. We should demand what we should have uh, as uh, tremendously that what is our basic rights, the fundamental rights. Only that was in our mind, especially in the workplace. He was the only man we knew locally who truly believed that we women textile workers can build a union, can bring ourselves together, that women-led trade union can be possible at these workplaces. Uh, that he also made uh, um, uh, the zeal in us that unbelievable changes also that we ourselves can make in the garment factories of Tamil Nadu. Uh, so uh, this is the main He was the main person to bring because uh, always there is a male-dominated uh, political, every political uh, parties have their own trade union. Uh, but among them, he was able to stimulate us to start a women-led trade union, also the Dalit women-led trade union. Uh, this is all about TTC. So we have these sweatshop conditions that these garment workers have come together to fight. And it is interesting to hear what she says about the formation of the union to counter the male-dominated traditional unions. 
that um, were operating in this sector. And I think that's, again, this is an issue that we see a lot where the workforce are predominantly women. However, the trade union sort of management or the people at the top of the trade unions are typically Mm -hmm. men. And so, again, Mm -hmm. seeing the story of TTCU is just incredible. And, yeah, they've really gone against the odds to make sure that women are representing women uh, as they should be. And they're representing themselves and they're able to speak about what they Mm. actually need rather than having a male who's probably a supervisor who doesn't really have their best interests at heart anyway. So we went on to ask Nandita from AFWA for her definition of gender-based violence and why it's so prevalent in the garment supply chain. Under existing international legal standards, uh, gender-based violence includes two things, which is violence which is directed against a woman because she's a woman, and violence which affects women disproportionately. And forms of gender-based violence include acts that inflict physical harm, mental harm, sexual harm or suffering, threats of any of these acts, coercion and deprivations of liberty, including post-overtime, prevented from taking bathroom breaks, etc. And gender-based violence is highly prevalent in garment production lines and is rooted in entrenched patterns of societal discrimination. Uh, Afwa's own research has found that women garment workers may be targets of violence on the basis of their gender or because they are perceived as less likely or able to resist. So what we're hearing here is that the gender-based violence and harassment has got quite a broad definition. It's not just what people might normally think in terms of physical violence. It goes well beyond that. The risk factors for gender-based violence in garment factories is a byproduct of how global fashion brands do their business. The ascendance of fast fashion and consistent efforts by global fashion brands to reduce costs particularly following the 2008 Great Recession, has contributed to poor working conditions in Asian supply of factories, leading to increased subcontracting, use of flexible contracts, and more obstacles to freedom of association and collective bargaining, all of which has increased women workers' vulnerability to gender-based violence. Some of the significant barriers to ending GBVH on garment production lines and other workplaces include cultures of impunity, challenges in reporting, ineffective systems and procedures, and retaliation, including further targeting, loss of employment, societal ostracization, and personal and professional reputational harm. But what we also see is that these barriers to ending GBVH are heightened in garment production line context. Um, In garment factories where majority male supervisors and line managers oversee an overwhelmingly female workforce, the main monopoly over authority entrenches a culture of impunity where sexual violence, uh, around sexual violence and harassment. And added to this are the low levels of job security among women workers, which heightens fears of retaliation, undermines reporting and reinforces the impunity. So, and this itself is a byproduct of brand purchasing practices. Uh, so in short, basically brand purchasing practices focused only on reducing costs and maximizing profits have reinforced patriarchal norms, which are devaluing women workers' labor and have increased gendered practices of industrial discipline, contributing to increased risk of gender-based violence in government supply chains. 
This is crucial as the evidence shows that issues around gender-based violence all stem from brands' cost-cutting practices that create a race to the bottom among suppliers. And so purchasing practices are essentially just how brands do business with suppliers. And what we've seen in research is that they it's essentially an abusive relationship where they demand factories make X amount of clothing in X amount of time and um, they will pay they they basically try and drive down the amount they will pay suppliers Mm -hmm. and there's um, I can't remember where this was called but in one context there was they actually called it like a where there's a they refer to it as a cattle where suppliers are essentially around a table and they have to like push down their wages to push down the cost to persuade suppliers to do business with them and so I'm not saying this is what happens in this context but it's basically an example of how brands will continue to drive down costs regardless of the impact it has on wages on help the investment in health and safety and in doing so because they demand because obviously it's fast fashion um, they demand clothes in such a small amount of time with limited resource um, this incentivizes this abusive relationship where suppliers are forcing workers to work overtime on such little pay um, and using abuse to do so. And I'm not saying evade, like taking away the blame from suppliers, but what I'm saying is that brands are creating this environment that incentivizes um, that treatment. And so by continuing to drive down wages, by continuing these purchasing practices that are putting workers lives in danger they are create they are yeah they're basically just allowing this to continue and they're profiting from it as well and they're commodifying the workers at the bottom of this at the bottom of this chain that's basically what it comes down to treating human beings like a commodity squeezing as much product out of them as possible in, yeah in like ways they're not people that, in, yeah, yeah, they're not humans. They're like cogs in a machine. They are labor costs. They're limited to being labor costs in like a tally of whatever, yeah. like in their accounting sheets or whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're not human. Beyond this broad introduction to the TTCU and the specifics of gender-based violence, we soon got into the details of the organizing at the factory where Jasri was murdered. In the year uh, 2018-19, uh, we started organizing uh, some women workers at Nachi Apparel's uh, unit of Eastman Exports. Uh, we did not have a lot of strength in Nachi Apparel's at that time, uh, but we were receiving grievances uh, related to sexual harassment, uh, forced overtime, verbal abuse, etc. We tried to reach out to the local management staff to discuss it, uh, they were extremely hostile and belittling our complaints and refusing to meet with us uh, as most factories in these regions refuse to engage with trade unions to negotiate and resolve issues. And it is at that point that we realized that like any other union, we needed to uh, build worker strength in the factory. So we organized many village level meetings of Nachi apparels, women workers, uh, and Jaisri was a young 21 year old girl who with her uh, mother would come for these union meetings in her village. 
she and her mother had been working in the factory from 2018 and had joined our village level unit in the year 2019 uh, jayestri was a quiet woman who kept to herself and was uh, very committed to her studies she was the first woman to go to college from her village she wanted to study tamil literature and become a teacher but given her family extremely poor she realized she could not find money for tuition without work so she started uh, take the job at onachi apparels working in the evening and night shifts at the garment factory she would spend 8 hours in the university come back and work from 4 pm in the factory at the afternoon to around 2 to 3 am in the Uh, late night at the factory jayestri was uh, murdered by her immediate supervisor tangadurai uh, on january 1st 2021 um, he is currently in police custody uh, facing trial for her murder after her death uh, her friends informed us that uh, he was sexually harassing her for months Mm, and she was not his only victim uh, that was really heartbreaking thing that we could know about him uh, many other women workers were abused by this supervisor as well as uh, by the supervisors and managers in the same factory uh, since her death uh, more than 25 other women workers of the same garment factory um, uh, came forward publicly describing culture of uh, gender based violence and harassment at the particular unit where jayestri has been working so 25 women have come forward since her death to say they've experienced violence from the same supervisor That's incredibly shocking before the dendigal agreement was signed uh, like in many other garment factories uh, in asia there were numerous practices and forms of conduct that existed in nachi apparels that violated international labor standards and brand codes of conduct regarding gender based violence and other forms of abusive treatment and interference with freedom of association uh, before the agreement was signed physical sexual abuse verbal and non verbal sexual harassment other forms of abusive treatment including punishing workers for lateness or absence by forcing them to stand at the front of their production line for hours was common Following Jessie's death there was an enormous outcry and I haven't seen something like this since um probably the pandemic era when brands cancelled orders and so mm. basically there was a huge mobilization effort from the TTC and Afwa to call on brands sourcing from the factory predominantly H&M um they had several demands to the brands including um providing compensation for Jasu's family as well as signing a binding agreement to end gender based violence in the factory and there was also she mentioned about to leave the women alone who were campaigning against gender based violence yeah and so this created a huge global movement which we saw predominantly online at the time because we were still in the pandemic period and basically everyone was demanding justice for Jasri became a well known sort of hashtag there were demonstrations outside of um H&M as well and yeah no sweat was this was how no sweat got involved and 
Nossa was contacted um, by AFWA through the journalist and activist Tansy Hoskins to join a coalition of organisations around the world to raise awareness. And so Yativia explained further about how this campaign developed. Uh, the Justice for uh, Jayastri campaign was started by TTCU, AFWA and GLJ, ILRF together with the support and solidarity of uh, hundreds of other groups uh, including a coalition of groups in the UK called the UK Justice for Jayastri campaign. We had three demands, um, a just compensation for Jayastri's parents for her death. Uh, second is uh, end to all retaliation against TTCU union members. And the third demand is an agreement with TTCU to prevent, eliminate GBVH in the workplace. We will be able to win uh, in terms of all three demands due to tremendous on ground organizing of women workers along with the international campaign and solidarity. During the campaign phase, uh, we organized a global sign on letter where more than uh, 90 unions, uh, women's organizations and other allies joined our call on government brands to negotiate a binding agreement to end systemic gender-based violence in Eastman exports. We placed two pieces at The Guardian with more than 25 women workers speaking to record the brutal forms of sexual violence that they experienced at uh, Nazi apparels. We organized a global vigil where more than a thousand people from um, 33 countries across four continents came together to honor the life of Jayasri Kadirvel and pay tribute to her. Uh, we also organized a speaking tour around the US where TTCU uh, spoke to unions in the US. Uh, many of uh, whose members also experience harassment at work. We heard from Tivia how the campaign was rooted in what exactly the workers wanted and their demands were central to the overall demand that was made of the brand. We reached out to our uh, workers at Nachi, uh, especially uh, the worker leaders of uh, Nachi, our own union members, and asked the workers for a wish list of everywhere uh, they wanted to change the culture of GBVH in the factory if we were to win an agreement between TTCU and Eastman Exports. We would have conversations with uh, uh, groups of workers and their worker leaders for weeks who all have worked for many years in the textile and spinning mills. Uh, they had experienced uh, CSR programs, seen its uh, shortfalls, and knew what exactly they needed. We asked Sahiba if she could tell us more about the binding agreement and why this is different to other policies brands put in practice to address gender-based violence in their supply chain. Most policies and programs that uh, fashion companies put in place that are under the umbrella of CSR uh, are really about um, oftentimes promoting the company's bottom line. You know, we know, um, and Asia Floorage Alliance has really shown that the purchasing practices of fashion companies, um, which really push down wages and make working conditions terrible, um, but that ultimately profit, you know, create profits for shareholders, 
um, are driving gender-based violence and harassment. So, um, you know, if workers aren't getting paid enough and their targets for manufacturing are incredibly high, managers on the shop floor are using gender-based violence and harassment as a tactic to actually drive production. And uh, typically, you know, women are the workers on the shop floor and men are often managers. So on top of that, companies are happy to put in place programs on gender-based violence and harassment that will provide trainings to workers, teach them how to quote unquote, identify gender-based violence and harassment, um, or will provide additional, uh, for example, life skills programs uh, on the idea that, you know, these are women who are entering the workforce, that actually these jobs are good for them. And for that reason, um, you know, anything they do for women workers is, you know, a gender focused uh, program. And the reality is that this is simply uh, what I'd call like pinkwashing. It's sort of a girl boss uh, approach to, you know, dealing with gender where a company is just, you know, putting in a training, you know, putting in, um, you know, a special program on a Saturday that companies that workers have to show up to in a context where there's rampant gender-based violence and harassment that's driven by their own purchasing practices. And that's the fundamental issue that they're not addressing. So our agreement uh, does something very different in two ways. One is that it's a fundamental uh, difference in approach. You know, this is a union-led program. And what that really means, you know, at its core is that there's a shift in the power relations at the factory. And we know that gender-based violence and harassment is driven by unequal power relations at the workplace when women can't report gender-based violence and harassment, can't speak up. That's why we feel like a union is is key to combating gender-based violence and harassment because it's the number one way, you know, workers can collectivize, organize, challenge the employer for better working conditions. So the big feature of our agreement that's, um, you know, different from these CSR approaches, in addition to having a union, is that our agreement is legally binding. Uh, So what does that mean? Basically, we have an agreement uh, with H&M that is legally binding. It's um, subject to binding arbitration in Stockholm in Sweden, which is the home jurisdiction of H&M. And uh, if H&M and that agreement is with all the labor stakeholders, including TTCU, and if H&M breaks that contract, for example, by failing to impose business consequences on the supplier Eastman, um, as is required under that contract, then any of the labor stakeholders, TTCU, AFWA, or Global Labor Justice International Labor Rights Forum, uh, can enforce that contract against H&M. So H&M basically, long story short, is legally required to support this program um, and to make sure that, you know, the, the supplier is working with the union to drive transformation. And we really think that that legally binding nature is what you need to help support getting unions into factories uh, and then to and that that union then um, is, is critical to driving transformation of gender based violence and harassment on the shop floor. So H&M signing the Dindigal Agreement was a huge, huge momentous thing, right? Because H&M is this billion dollar corporation that has been widely documented as profiting from gender-based violence. Like there's reports coming from AFWA themselves, actually, like from 2018, um, documenting gender-based violence in the supply chain. 
And so this isn't an uncommon thing. With, like, with the, H&M has been linked to gender-based violence before. And so for this corporation that has been called out and has done nothing, for them to then be pushed by a Tamil Dalit woman-led union to sign a agreement is extremely significant. H&M obviously took this uh, very seriously and uh, because of the conditions of the factory and and us all wanting to understand uh, what was happening, what was driving um, this, you know, really extreme situation, uh, we all agreed to an independent investigation. And that was something that very early on H&M committed to. Uh, by contrast, we do know that there were several other fashion companies sourcing from Nachi Apparels, uh, including uh, Marks and Spencer. And they exited the factory, uh, but were not at the table to arrive at a solution. And we really feel uh, that fashion companies have to be doing that, not only from an ethical perspective, which is really obvious, but a lot of the, you know, the rules internationally now that um, the UN has helped negotiate the fashion companies, you know, have all said that they agree to really require, you know, any company, including fashion companies to be helping resolve issues in their supply chains when they come up, um, especially, you know, any human rights violation, but, a, you know, especially a extreme human rights violation like this, you would expect companies to be coming to the table, especially when we know that the fashion companies are contributing to gender-based violence and harassment with their purchasing practices. Uh, so, we were happy to see that H&M was at the table and really disappointed when, when other brands chose to cut and run. We asked Sahiba what campaigners and concerned citizens around the world can do to support future worker-led action in solidarity with Gama workers, in particular regarding gender-based violence. Well, I think we see fundamentally the most um, important thing for workers, you know, facing gender-based violence and harassment is to be able to have a collective work voice at the workplace. And we know how challenging that is for workers who want to unionize because so many workers are told that if you try and have a union, you will get fired. Uh, contracts in the garment industry are really precarious. Uh, it's easy for workers to get fired and even easy for workers to get blacklisted from the industry altogether if they try and organize. So I hope that when you know, consumers, for example, see a story out there about union busting in the supply chain of a brand that they, you know, have purchased clothes from, that uh, they are contacting the groups involved, maybe contacting the brands, figuring out a way to support that because the brands are definitely out there putting a lot of information on the internet, on their social media about how, quote unquote, ethical they are, how sustainable they are. But the reality is that that's what fashion companies want you to be hearing. Um, and, you know, workers don't have, you know, equal access to, uh, you know, to the type of media and campaigning that fashion companies have. So when you see a story out there um, already, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And you should find a way to be in solidarity with those workers. We finished by asking what has happened since the signing of the agreement. Yes. Um, so as you know, the Dindigal agreement um, came after Jeffrey was murdered by a supervisor. And there have been at least three workers from Nachi who were murdered by people in supervisory roles in the last few years and multiple women talking about sexual harassment. But after signing the agreement, there's been a huge change in the factory. 
there has been an end to all corporal punishment and victim blaming and gender segregation as a tactic to address gbvh is completely removed secondly we're seeing an increased reporting of gbvh which we think is a really good thing that means that workers are no longer scared to report gbvh and these are not extremely serious cases of gb of gbvh that we are seeing right now like rape etc but more of uh, verbal abuse sexual comments etc and it's good that women are reporting it and the union with the power of the eba has ensured that almost all of these complaints are resolved and remediated within a 14 day period and because management is getting punished that is even for minor cases of gbvh like even if a supervisor says a bad word he has to write an apology letter women workers themselves are saying that management has become scared and they do not dare to engage in more severe acts of gbvh so the culture of impunity is broken thirdly with the union in the factory non gbvh issues are also getting addressed be it regarding health and safety uh, regulations being implemented wage violations are becoming extremely limited and quickly remediated as per law the quality of food is improving in canteens issues in transport facilities are getting resolved etc and one really important victory for the union was that they used this agreement and its freedom of association provisions to ensure that the workers demand for a deduction in transport fee was won so workers had actually protested for one day for this before the agreement and they nothing had actually happened but after the agreement they collectively organized and with the support of the union they put forward this demand to the management and the management actually accepted it and so this was actually a victory in terms of wage also and workers were extremely excited and you know it shows the power of ebas even if it's an eba for addressing gbvh it has the capacity to address other issues and one really other important thing is also the factory which was itself the factory itself is slowly changing the culture within the community and this is a very slow process um so the factory no longer is an institution that is replicating the caste based discrimination the gender based discrimination that is present in society but it is actually becoming a place where dalit women can come work be respected treated as equals with opportunities to grow and slowly it is challenging norms in society itself about caste gender etc so um and that is a really beautiful process to see right um from factory being an institution that is replicating caste to the one that is challenging caste and gender uh, relations and another important thing is also that unions like ttcu you know they are so rooted in community and workplace and they also are able to address a lot of issues that women workers face outside the factory through the agreement like for example in nachi we have a lot of single mothers and women who are facing domestic violence and many of them did not know what to do with the union in the factory you know women are able to talk about their domestic violence issues to them and ttcu is going a long way to kind of finding support for these women in terms of addressing domestic violence uh, like offering them legal support assisting them to find shelter homes so so it is a tool through which women are able to address issues even outside the factory and that's why i think um, ebas like this are really phenomenal which bring in unions to the factory floor because they don't just transform the factory they transform societies uh, they change cultures of impunity and they also offer women a lot of support and solidarity not just with regard to workplace issues but issues outside the factory also
So thank you guys for doing those interviews. They were amazing and inspiring. And I think a takeaway from this interview, I mean, it, it was it was really obvious seeing how inspired both of you were talking to these women. Um, and, you know, again, as we always try to sort of do with this podcast, we're dealing with brutal stuff. But there's hope and there's there are there are really inspiring, strong, active women out there making changes, organising stuff, organising these incredible, wide-reaching international solidarity groups. Yeah, I thought it was amazing how they organised and that obviously, like, Jasri's death had ignited such a passion with these women and, and they 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 had a voice, but they were finally being listened to um, and being respected with the respect that they deserved. Um, it was it was really commendable and like really inspiring to hear. A hundred percent. There was a global event online where um, the TTCU, Jastri's family and friends, uh, organisations around the world all got together to pay tribute to her and to her life. It's hard to say justice for Jastri when she, justice would have been her being alive, right? But what we were mm. calling for essentially were the demands from the union and from her family and hearing from her family and it ended, the, uh, the event ended with um, like a song that was sung by the union the uh, the union and her friends and family and it was the most it was really heartbreaking but it was also so powerful to see that solidarity and to remember her and just like and to remember who she was, she was more than just a hashtag. Like she was a human being. She was a friend. She was a daughter. Um, she had goals, and I think that event really hit home for all of us. And it was really great for like myself and also for No Sweat to get involved in that. Um, and it was an honor to also be invited to be part of that as, as well. So, what can we do as listeners to this podcast, as activists? What can we do to help them? Um, so firstly, if you want to find out more about this campaign, go check out justiceforjastri.com. Also check out Asia Floor Wage Alliance, um, Global Labour Justice International Labour Rights Forum and TTCU. They are all of it. They are all on Twitter. So you can keep up to date with what's going on with them and their ongoing campaigns, um, including Justice for Jastri, but also other campaigns they're involved in. Um, and also keep up to date with no sweat as we will continue to, to update on the campaign and finally um we uh, it was mentioned in the podcast there is a call for people to call on marks and spencer who are not refusing to basically source from the so they initially started they were initially sourced from nachi apparels and then they stopped because of the allegations and then now, despite the fact that this agreement has been put in place, they don't want to come back and source from the factory, even though this is a factory that is obviously now dealing with gender-based violence and um, has significantly improved workers' lives, which seems very weird. But again, it kind of follows this idea that brands are less likely to source from factories where workers essentially are now speaking out about their rights. And in this case, obviously, it's beyond gender-based violence. Now it's wages, it's... Um, yeah. other issues that they face in the factory and so this is very much what Mark Spencer is giving um, through their sort of reluctance so essentially Mark and Spencer to, have yeah. sorry so essentially Mark and Spencer have run away 
because they don't yeah. want to be associated with these horrible labour practices and this abuse and murder. And then they've gone, yeah, we're, now that things are better, <laughs> you're not getting our money even still. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, a typical brands to cut and run when it, when, it, when it suits them. And in this case, leaving is easier than dealing with workers who are now speaking out for yeah, their rights. And totally not supporting, you know, good practices in a workplace where they're trying their best to actually, you know, change conditions for these the garment mm. workers. So all of the links to all of these campaigns and organisations are in the show notes. Please spread the word about the No Sweat podcast. Please spread the word about No Sweat. Get involved in the campaigns. Thank you very much for listening. I have been Andrew O'Neill, mainly listening and being very inspired. I'm Nav. And I'm Aisha. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.